Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 204, No Peace Without War. This week, I want to turn our attention to an interesting discussion that forms one of the hallmarks of debate in the history of 20th century Japan, the nature of Japanese fascism. This is such a big one that for my field exam in modern Japanese history, it was one of two questions I knew I was going to get on the oral exam. The other, if you're curious, is, is the Meiji Restoration a revolution or not? So, the question of what exactly we can call Japan's foray to the hard right has set scholars against each other for decades. Scholars on both sides of the debate as to whether we can call Japan of the 1930s and 1940s fascist have put out enough papers, articles, and books to clear-cut a good-sized forest by now. Now, I am not an expert on European fascism by any means, so I'm a bit nervous about attempting to present to you a workable definition of the term fascist. A nervousness that's compounded by the fact that fascism is, in a certain sense, in the eye of the beholder. Now, I don't want to get too heavy into European philosophy. Though philosophy is great, and if you're at all interested in the subject, I highly recommend checking out the excellent Philosophize This podcast. But we've got to talk a little bit about European philosophy because fascism is, in a certain sense, a rejection of what we call Enlightenment thought. This is the notion, traced back to the European Enlightenment and in some ways much further, that the world and humans are fundamentally rational, and that with the power of our rational intellects honed via education, we can be our best versions of ourselves and create a better world while doing so. Most of the modern Western political tradition, electoral politics, republics, democracy, the rule of law, human rights, is rooted in this Enlightenment tradition. However, in the 19th century, this view of the world, which we call rationalism sometimes, was challenged by something called Romanticism. Romanticism in the philosophic sense emphasizes not the rational intellect, but the power of emotion, of the things that drive us that are inherently irrational. Thus, it's not romantic in the sense of dating, but in the sense of passion, any passion, from personal love to patriotism. Now, I am simplifying things hugely and can already feel the angry emails coming as I say this, but I think you can draw a pretty direct line from the Romanticism versus Rationalism debate to the 20th century battles of democracy versus fascism, because, well, not all Romantics were fascists, fascism draws some inspiration from Romanticism. Specifically, fascism is about rejecting rational arguments about the rule of law and the importance of respecting human rights in favor of a highly emotional patriotism, an emotional desire to subordinate the individual self to a greater collective. In other words, to feel like a part of something. The reason I feel this point matters enough to enrage a thousand philosophy students by inexpertly bringing it up is that it's important to establish that fascism is by definition irrational. It is, after all, an outgrowth of Romanticism's anti-intellectualism. Fascism, then, is not Marxism. There is no figure who sat down and wrote out a clear definition of what it means to be a fascist in the same sense that Lenin or Marx did for Marxism. Fascism has no time for that namby-pamby intellectual crap. 
fascism is too busy jamming the heads of those intellectuals into toilets, or much worse places. That means that defining fascism is an enormously difficult prospect because fascists themselves were not consistent about what it meant. That said, I'm going to venture at a basic definition here, one that I doubt all or even most historians of fascism would agree with, but it gives us a place to start. So, fascism is first and foremost highly authoritarian, placing a great deal of authority in the state. The fascist rationale for this is usually wrapped up in some idea of what is called organic nationhood, that a country, in a sense, is like an animal, and the people within it are like cells. Just like any organism needs its cells to get on with what they're supposed to do and not wander off doing whatever they feel like, a nation needs people to shut up and get behind the rest of the organism and not wander off to do art or have opinions or whatever else. Taking a lesson from World War I, fascists believed, and still do believe, that the total mobilization of the people behind the state is necessary to protect the state from catastrophes, political, economic, or social. Second, fascism is in a sense backward-looking, and this is where romanticism plays into it. It always romanticizes a part of the past as a better time for the nation and strives to return to that better past. For fascist Italy, that time was the Roman era. For the Nazis, it was early German history. For the phalangists of Spain, it was the glory days of Spanish monarchy. This idealized past is always divorced from reality. But that's not what matters. What matters is the feeling of the good old days and what it inspires. Some of you, I know, are fans of Dan Carlin and his excellent history podcasts. He also does some podcasts on modern politics. And while I don't completely agree with him on modern politics, I've always loved the line he cribbed from one of his old philosophy professors about how, in America, fascism would not involve jackboots and fascist salutes. It would involve cowboy hats and six-shooters, and the Fuhrer would be John Wayne. Because for Americans... That's the romanticized past. Third, fascism keeps the economy under state guidance, if not direct control. You can't have all those capitalist types running around making money that could be used for the betterment of the state. All of that money would be far better used to provide economic opportunity for the people of the nation. Just the people of the nation, mind you, nobody else. Fourth, Fascists believe in the guidance of a party leadership, a vanguard party, a term borrowed from Marxists. These are the people whose knowledge and know-how would make them the ones who could guide the state towards that better promised future that would somehow be kind of like the past but better. So was Japan a fascist? Well, I think the best way to explore, if not answer that question, would be to look at the life of one of its leading fascists. So this week... After about seven and a half minutes, let's get to the topic of our episode, Kita Iki. Kita Iki was born on the island of Sado in Niigata Prefecture in 1883. Sado, if you've never heard of it, floats out above the main island of Honshu. For centuries, it was a favorite place for the central government to exile rebellious types. Young Kita was born under the name Terujiro though I'll continue to use his pen name for consistency. He was, by all accounts, a brilliant child, 
The son of a sake merchant, he came from a well-to-do family and was able to afford an excellent education in both the Chinese and Japanese literary classics, as well as in new ideas brought over from the West. In fact, he did so well that in 1904 he was accepted to the highly prestigious Waseda University in Tokyo, which had been founded only 22 years earlier by the Meiji statesman Okuma Shigenobu after he was kicked out of the government for advocating the view that Japan needed a French-style liberal democratic constitution. There, Kita continued to excel. He also fell in with an interesting crowd philosophically, meeting a young group of fellow college students who were, in the finest college intellectual tradition, busy reading about socialism. Kita became a convert to the socialist cause, and for most of his young adulthood considered himself a socialist, and even referred to less militant socialists as posers and opportunists. This might seem a bit odd to you, because after all, fascism has a long history of opposition to socialism and communism. But it's not that strange of a trajectory for a fascist. Indeed, the man who literally coined the term fascism, Benito Mussolini, was a socialist for most of his adulthood, and was even forced into hiding in exile for his adherence to the Italian socialist cause. He was kicked out of the Italian Socialist Party in 1915, for his support of Italian entry into the First World War, which the Socialist International opposed as a capitalist war of imperialist conquest. Indeed, more than a few planks of the fascist platforms are direct lifts from the socialist or Marxist left. The idea of subordinating business to the state, for example, fits just as well into a Marxist worldview as it does into a fascist one. In fact, one of the most common methods for businessmen in Japan to attack fascists was to accuse them of being closet Marxists who wanted to nationalize everything and turn Japan into the Soviet Union. Same with the notion of the vanguard party, the leadership that would bring about fascism. This is actually originally a Marxist idea, coined by Lenin to provide leadership to the revolution and prevent a repeat of the disasters of the 1871 Paris Commune Uprising, where radical Parisians tried to organize a revolt and instead ended up doing nothing beyond breaking into Napoleon III's basement and stealing all his wine. Which, to be fair, is the most French way imaginable to fail at revolution. Where fascists and Marxists come apart is, first and foremost, in their view of the state. Marxists see nations as outmoded, Instead, the future is supposed to be defined by class struggle, not national struggle. Fascists, on the other hand, are all about identifying completely with the state. So in Kitaiki's case, there's no one clear moment we can point to and say, this is what drove him from Marxism to fascism. It seems, rather, to have been a slowly building sense within young Kita that Japan's Marxists were too timid. They were, in his eyes, too willing to compromise, too afraid of the government to genuinely accomplish anything. At the same time, Kita was swept up in the wave of Japanese patriotism that accompanied Japan's victories in the Russo-Japanese War and its emergence onto the stage of world powers. Remember, he was 22 when Japan won its war against Russia. Speaking as someone for whom the age of 22 is not that far off, it's a very easy time to be swept up in things. 
So by the time Kita published his first serious work in 1906, his writing was already tinged with the ideas that would define his life. His 1,000-page Kokutaidon Oyobi Junsei Shakaishugi, or The Theory of the National Polity in Pure Socialism, was, above all else, utterly uncompromising. In it, Kita attacked what he saw as weakness within the socialist bloc, a willingness to compromise with the rich and powerful among those who would rather accept scraps from the table like a dog than rise up. However, Kita's writing about socialism, and he still called himself a socialist at this point, was tinged with a powerfully nationalist element, because he wrote in terms of Japan as a nation and its national destiny to light the way forward in Asia, not in terms familiar to Marxists, like class struggle or international solidarity. Indeed, Kita outright attacked Marxist notions of class struggle as divisive and leading to chaos. Instead, he embraced an evolutionary view of human history, defined by different nations battling each other in a survival of the fittest brawl. Demonstrating his impressive intellectual credentials, he even drew on the Greek historian Thucydides and his famous quote from the Melian Dialogue, The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. In fact, Kita presented a rather unique blend of philosophic ideas, arguing that authoritarian rule was the most effective way to direct the energies of a nation, and drawing his authority from two philosophers who were kind of contemporaries of each other, though certainly not contemporaries of Kita. The great Confucian Mencius, who argued that it was the duty of a ruler to keep his state in order, and Plato, whose republic called for rule by enlightened philosopher kings above the petty squabbles of regular people. Personally, I'd consider that a misreading of Mencius, but that's a discussion for another day. After graduating from college, Kita returned to Sado and began to write professionally about politics, developing a small intellectual following, but remaining something of a national non-entity. However, in 1911, two things happened that changed the trajectory of his life. First, in the autumn of that year, China's Qing dynasty, suddenly and rather anticlimactically, collapsed in the face of a rebellion that more or less started by accident when an officer in the Qing army discovered that garrison troops in the city of Wuhan were planning an uprising. Expecting to die in a valiant last stand, the Wuhan troops proclaimed a rebellion, instead the rest of China joined them, and just like that, 2,000 years of imperial China came to an end. Kita was fascinated by what was happening in China. He believed that the new government being organized by Sun Yat-sen could direct China down the same path of authoritarian modernization that he himself embraced. He ended up joining Sun's revolutionary Tongmenghui organization. In fact, Kita spent several years in China organizing for Sun Yat-sen. At the same time, however, he was approached by a different group of Japanese political activists, the Kokuryukai. This is the famous Amur River Society, which took as its goal the conquest of all of Manchuria up to the Amur River, the region's border with Russia. Kita's authoritarian views, you see, spoke to the Japanese ultra-right. Even his dalliance with socialism was in their view a plus. The founder of Japan's first secret society, Toyama Mitsuru, 
viewed himself as the spiritual heir of samurai who had rejected Japan's transition into a capitalist nation-state and maintained an outward Confucian disdain for the corrupting trappings of wealth. Not that he didn't live like a goddamn zillionaire, mind you. He just didn't want everyone else to be corrupted by that sort of thing. So Kita ended up joining the Kokuryukai as well, and acted as their agent in China, gathering information and developing contacts. He was both an agent of the Chinese government and a spy planted within it. Honestly, at some point I really need to do an episode on Japan's secret societies, but for obvious reasons, it's hard to get good sources or to know exactly who to believe when it comes to some of the more exaggerated claims about their influence. Now this part of Kita's life is pretty murky for obvious secret society-related reasons, but it appears clear that by the time he returned to Japan, he was firmly convinced of the failure of China's revolution, which had collapsed in the wake of the military's refusal to go along with Sun Yat-sen. As a corollary to that, he became convinced that Japan must be the one to impose order on the Asian mainland. When he returned to Japan in 1919, Kita produced his magnum opus, the Nihon Kaizo Hoan Taiko, or Outline of a Plan for the Reorganization of Japan. In his work, Kita laid out the fundamentals of his ideology, which would remain more or less consistent until his death. First, Kita emphasized the unique nature of Japan's kokutai, a word he liked to throw around quite a bit. It's a very hard word to translate into English. The common rendering is national polity, though the somewhat more literal body politic gets thrown in there now and then. It's a concept we don't really have in English, of the nation as a cohesive unit not just in a political sense but in a total one, given form and reality by the emperor. Japan's kokutai is created and legitimated by the emperor, whose rule over Japan marks it out for a special destiny. Second, Kita believed that Japan's kokutai had been diluted by Western ideas, especially by the corrosive influence of democracy. He attacks democracy at length by saying, quote, There is absolutely no scientific basis for the thinking that a democracy that is, a state system where the representatives of the people are selected by an electoral system, is better than a system where the state is represented by a single person. The nation differs according to the spirit of the peoples of each nation and the history of the formation of the nation. One cannot say that China, which has had a republican government for eight years, is more rational than Belgium, where one person represents the nation. The American idea of democracy is based on the idea of a society formed by the free will of individuals who enter into a free contract, and the extremely crude idea of the time that individuals broke away from the original countries of Europe and formed village communities and that these became nations. The theory of the divine right of voters was a feeble philosophy, merely the obverse of the divine right of kings. This did not happen with the establishment of Japan, and neither was there a period when such a feeble philosophy was dominant. A system where the head of state has to manipulate views by selling his name, refining his mannerisms like a low-class actor to fight elections, is for the Japanese race which have been brought up to believe that silence is golden and modesty a virtue, 
invitation enough to remain a mute spectator to this strange custom, end quote. Third, Kita believed that Japan faced a crisis of epic proportions as a result of the threat from the West in the wake of the First World War. Like many others, he believed that the Peace of Versailles was merely a temporary halt, not a genuine end to world hostilities. He wrote, quote, There is a danger that the country established by our ancestors will disappear if we make one miscalculation, for we see again the dangers of internal troubles and foreign danger that our country faced at the end of the Tokugawa period and the Meiji Restoration, end quote. To save Japan, Kita argued that it was necessary to radically reorganize the entire country. The imperial diet had to be eliminated, the Meiji constitution had to be abolished. The wealth of the great Zaibatsu families, corrosive to the cohesion of the state, had to be expropriated and a hard cap set on the amount of wealth any one person could have. Interestingly, Kita's justification for this was actually grounded in theories about feudalism. He viewed feudalism as identical to decentralization in every respect, and the trend of human history as being towards centralization under the government. Thus, he actually called American politics and economics feudalistic, and caught up in its own age of warring states, much like Japan's Sengoku period. Rather than warriors fighting on a battlefield, different political and economic interest groups battled for supremacy in elections in a way that, while less violent, still divided the state and left it weak. By contrast, Kita believed that the way forward was to centralize everything, so that all energy could be directed by the state towards its projects of value. Externally, Kita called for the expansion of Japan's empire to include, eventually, China, Siberia, and everything down to Australia. All the peoples living there would have to be educated in Japanese values and governed under the same rules as Japanese citizens. Quote, Japan must show the ideal to the West in new possessions by taking measures to completely stop any discrimination between races and peoples. In Australia, the Indian race, the people of China, and Far Eastern Siberia and Korea, they must be welcomed and united together with the white people who have been there from before. Thus, in the whole world, only the Empire of Japan will govern a union of Western and Eastern civilizations. In our territories, if reorganized institutions are enforced and the sovereign people themselves control the violence of private interests and sweep away the original rich white settlers, it will become possible to lay the foundations of a true paradise for world brotherhood. It is mere child's play to spread color on a map. The Japanese people who have been selected to spread the message of heaven should not, it is evident, become a second England, which is collapsing because of heaven's rebuke. Kita justified this call to aggressive war in terms borrowed from socialism, it would be a war to restore justice to the world by overthrowing landlord nations that exploited others, among which he lumped the British, Americans, and Soviets. Japan, by contrast, was a proletarian nation which had the right to rise up and overthrow its oppressors in the same way that the working class had the right to rise up. Perhaps the most chilling line of the whole text is the final one. On the road to heaven, there is no peace without war. To advance his agenda, Kita joined a new secret society, the Yuzonsha, 
literally, the remaining. The name is a reference to the fact that the Yuzonsha was a breakaway from a different society, the Rosokai. The breakaway members had determined that the Rosokai was insufficiently politically radical. The society was already home to some intellectual heavyweights, most notably Okawa Shumei, who would later be tried by the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, and who would give Tojo Hideki a good ol' whack on the noggin. However, Kita's work drew the attention of the Yuzonsha leadership, and they invited him to assume control of the society and direct its efforts. However, Kita proved to be, quite frankly, terrible at it. The Yuzonsha accomplished functionally nothing in ten years. Kita proved extremely bad at organizing actual political campaigns. He wasted a great deal of effort campaigning against a University of Tokyo professor named Yoshino Sakuzo, who published a series of articles arguing that semi-democratic government was compatible with Japan's constitution and with the emperor's rule. The Yuzonsha campaigned for his firing. They did not succeed. Indeed, his biggest success was joining a campaign to prevent the annulment of Emperor Hirohito's marriage to his empress, Kojun, after she proved to have some difficulty producing a male heir. What restored Kita to real prominence, and allowed him to move on from the realm of imperial marriage politics to things people actually care about, was the Great Depression and the collapse of Japan's democracy two years later during the Manchurian Incident. The civilian government, increasingly unpopular as it proved unable to restart the economy, lost all authority after it attempted to reverse the invasion of Manchuria. Rumors of military coups swirled in the air, and in May 1932 the sitting prime minister was assassinated. Yet even as Japan's nascent democracy crumbled and the military assumed power, Kita's followers were not themselves in power. The military leadership was composed of old political conservatives. Authoritarian, yes, but authoritarian on the model of the Meiji Constitution, not on Kita's model. Kita did have followers in the military, however. His outline of a plan for the reorganization of Japan remained in print, though it and Kita's other work was occasionally officially banned. It spoke powerfully to young military officers, generally from rural areas which had been devastated by economic downturns. Among them, Kita found a receptive audience, but that audience never grew beyond mid-ranking officers into the army and navy leadership. In February of 1936, it is believed without Kita's knowledge or approval, army officers sympathetic to Kita's ideas decided that they were tired of waiting. They attempted a military coup, declaring their intent to put most of Kita's program into action. At some point, I want to do an entire episode specifically on what is called the 226 Incident, as the coup is known, because of the date it took place, February 26, 1936. For now, however, you only need to know one thing. The coup failed, and in the aftermath, conservative military leaders took a chance to clean house. Kita was rounded up in the post-coup arrests, tried in a closed military court, and in August of 1937 he was put up against a wall and shot. So Kita Iki, I think, does fit the litmus test of being a fascist, 
Based on the definition we've set, he seems to fit the bill in every way. But Japan's government, which was supposedly fascist, killed him for opposing it. After his death, some aspects of his programs were implemented, especially restrictions on political parties and state supervision of the Zaibatsu. But the Zaibatsu were never nationalized. That wealth cap thing never happened. The core idea of burning down the Meiji system and building Kita's new program in its place remained unrealized. Indeed, it seems to me that Japan is actually an example where existing authoritarian conservatives were able to succeed in doing what Germany's authoritarian conservatives could not. They harnessed the power of Kita's ideology, but did not allow that ideology to threaten their own power in the way that Nazism eventually overtook traditional German conservatism. Kita's language about a war for Japan's survival about racial harmony being uniquely possible under Japanese leadership was useful for Japanese military leaders during World War II. They deployed it, though very pointedly they did not give credit to Kita for the idea. In the end, his ideas were completely incompatible with the idea that the continued leadership could remain in power, and in the end, the leadership killed him for it. Wartime Japan in my opinion, is an authoritarian oligarchy wearing the trappings of fascism, but not with the true essence of fascism. Indeed, the ultimate failing of Imperial Japan is one fundamentally incompatible with Kita's vision of fascism. As we've hit on time and time again, wartime Japan was an oligarchy without a clear leader, which made making actual decisions extremely hard. There are plenty of scholars out there who would disagree with me on that, I'm sure, but hey. But hey, that's what keeps history relevant. We keep disagreeing with each other, and we keep modifying what we talk about to suit the needs of the present day. And while the resurgence of the far right in some countries has raised the specter of whether the ideology of fascism is relevant once again, I'm happy to think that Kita's ideas, in Japan at least, are relegated to the far margins and the dustbin of history. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week when we start a new series on the Japanese diaspora.